Chapter 2 Question. What's the difference between a PhD in mathematics and a large pizza? Answer. A large pizza can feed a family of four. In 1964, Simons quit Harvard University to join an intelligence group helping to fight the ongoing Cold War with the Soviet Union. The group told Simons he could continue his mathematics research as he worked on government assignments. Just as important, he doubled his previous salary and began paying off his debts. Simons's offer came from the Princeton, New Jersey Division of the Institute for Defense Analyses, an elite research organization that hired mathematicians from top universities to assist the National Security Agency, the United States' largest and most secretive intelligence agency, in detecting and attacking Russian codes and ciphers. Simons joined during a tumultuous period for the IDA. High-level Soviet codes hadn't been cracked on a regular basis in more than a decade. Simons and his colleagues at the IDA's Communications Research Division were tasked with securing U.S. communications and making sense of stubbornly impenetrable Soviet code. The IDA taught Simons how to develop mathematical models to discern and interpret patterns in seemingly meaningless data. He began using statistical analysis and probability theory, mathematical tools that would influence his work. To break codes, Simons would first determine a plan of attack. Then, he'd create an algorithm, a series of steps for his computer to follow to test and implement his strategy. Simons was awful at designing computer programs, forcing him to rely on the division's in-house programmers for the actual coding, but he honed other skills that would prove valuable later in his career. I learned I liked to make algorithms and testing things out on a computer, Simons later said. Early on, Simons helped develop an ultra-fast code-breaking algorithm, solving a long-standing problem in the group. Soon thereafter, intelligence experts in Washington discovered an isolated instance in which the Soviets sent a coded message with an incorrect setting. Simons and two colleagues seized on the glitch, which provided rare insight into the internal construction of the enemy's system and helped devise ways to exploit it. The advances made Simons a sleuthing star and earned the team a trip to Washington, D.C. to accept personal thanks from Defense Department officials. The only problem with his new job? Simons couldn't share his accomplishments with anyone outside the organization. Members of the group were sworn to secrecy. The word the government used to describe how it classified the IDA's work was itself classified. What did you do today? Barbara would ask when Simons came home from work. Oh, the usual, he'd reply. Before long, Barbara gave up asking. Simons was struck by the unique way talented researchers were recruited and managed in his unit. Staff members, most of whom had doctorates, were hired for their brain power, creativity, and ambition, rather than for any specific expertise or background. The assumption was that researchers would find problems to work on and be clever enough to solve them. Lenny Baum, among the most accomplished codebreakers, developed a saying that became the group's credo. Bad ideas is good, good ideas is terrific, no ideas is terrible. It was an idea factory, says Lee Newworth, the division's deputy director, whose daughter, Bibi, later became a Broadway and television star. Researchers couldn't discuss their work with those outside the organization. 
Internally, however, the division was structured to breed an unusual degree of openness and collegiality. Most of the 25 or so employees, all mathematicians and engineers, were given the same title, technical staff member. The team routinely shared credit and met for champagne toasts after discovering solutions to particularly thorny problems. Most days, researchers wandered into one another's offices to offer assistance or lend an ear. When staffers met each day for afternoon tea, they discussed the news, played chess, worked on puzzles, or competed at Go, the complicated Chinese board game. Simons and his wife threw regular dinner parties at which IDA staffers became inebriated on Barbara's rum-heavy fish house punch. The group played high-stakes poker matches that lasted until the next morning, with Simons often walking away with fistfuls of his colleagues' cash. One evening, the gang came over, but Simons was nowhere to be found. Jim was arrested, Barbara told the crew. Simons had racked up so many parking tickets in his beat-up Cadillac and had ignored so many of the resulting summonses that the police threw him in jail. The mathematicians piled into a few cars, drove to the police station, and chipped in to bail Simons out. The IDA was filled with unconventional thinkers and outsized personalities. One large room hosted a dozen or so personal computers for the staff. One morning, a guard discovered a cryptologist in the room wearing a bathrobe and nothing more. He'd been thrown out of his home and had been living in the computer room. Another time, late at night, someone noticed a staffer typing away on a keyboard. What was shocking was that the employee was typing with his bare, smelly toes, rather than his fingers. His fingers were bad enough, Newworth says. It was really disgusting. People were furious. Even as Simons and his colleagues were uncovering Soviet secrets, Simons was nurturing one of his own. Computing power was becoming more advanced but securities firms were slow to embrace the new technology, continuing to rely on card-sorting methods for accounting and other areas. Simons decided to start a company to electronically trade and research stocks, a concept with the potential to revolutionize the industry. The 28-year-old Simons shared the idea with his boss, Dick Leibler, as well as the IDA's best programmer. They both agreed to join his company to be named iStar. Accustomed to top-secret schemes, the group worked surreptitiously on the company. One day, though, Newworth got wind of the plot. Upset that the pending departures would gut the group, Newworth stormed into Leibler's office. Why are you guys leaving? How did you find out? Leibler responded. Who else knows? Everyone. You guys left the last sheet of your business plan on the Xerox machine. Their strategy was more Maxwell smart than James Bond, it turned out. In the end, Simons failed to raise enough money to get the business off the ground, eventually dropping the idea. It didn't feel like much of a setback, because Simons was finally making progress in his research on minimal varieties, the subfield of differential geometry that had long captivated him. Differential equations, which are used in physics, biology, finance, sociology, and many other fields, describe the derivatives of mathematical quantities, or their relative rates of change. Isaac Newton's famous physics equation, the net force on an object is equal to its mass times its acceleration, is a differential equation because acceleration is a second derivative with respect to time. 
equations involving derivatives with respect to time and space are examples of partial differential equations and can be used to describe elasticity, heat, and sound, among other things. An important application of PDEs to geometry is in the theory of minimal varieties, which had been the focus of Simons's research since his first semester as an MIT instructor. A classic illustration in the field concerns the surface formed by a soap film stretching across a wire frame that has been dipped in soap solution and lifted out. Such a surface has minimal area compared with any other surface with the same wire frame as its boundary. Experimenting with soap films in the 19th century, Belgian physicist Joseph Plateau asked whether such surfaces with minimal areas always exist, and whether they are so smooth that every point looks alike, no matter how complicated or twisted the wire frame. The answer to what became known as Plateau's problem was yes, at least for ordinary two-dimensional surfaces, as proved by a New York mathematician in 1930. Simons wanted to know if the same would be true for minimal surfaces in higher dimensions, something geometers call minimal varieties. Mathematicians who focus on theoretical questions often immerse themselves in their work, walking, sleeping, even dreaming about problems for years on end. Those with no exposure to this kind of mathematics, which can be described as abstract or pure, are liable to dismiss it as pointless. Simons wasn't merely solving equations like a high school student, however. He was hoping to discover and codify universal principles, rules, and truths, with the goal of furthering the understanding of these mathematical objects. Albert Einstein argued that there is a natural order in the world. Mathematicians like Simons can be seen as searching for evidence of that structure. There is true beauty to their work especially when it succeeds in revealing something about the universe's natural order. Often, such theories find practical applications, even many years later, while advancing our knowledge of the universe. Eventually, a series of conversations with Frederick Almgren, Jr., a professor at nearby Princeton University who had solved the problem in three dimensions, helped Simons achieve a breakthrough. Simons created a partial differential equation of his own, which became known as the Simons Equation, and used it to develop a uniform solution through six dimensions. He also proposed a counterexample in dimension seven. Later, three Italians, including Fields Medal winner Enrico Bombieri, showed the counterexample to be correct. In 1968, Simons published Minimal Varieties in Riemannian Manifolds, which became a foundational paper for geometers, proved crucial in related fields, and continues to garner citations, underscoring its enduring significance. These achievements helped establish Simons as one of the world's preeminent geometers. Even as Simons realized success in code-breaking and mathematics, he kept searching for new ways to make money. The IDA granted its researchers a remarkable amount of flexibility in their work, so Simons spent time examining the stock market. Working with Baum and two other colleagues, Simons developed a newfangled stock trading system. The quartet published an internal classified paper for the IDA called Probabilistic Models for and Prediction of Stock Market Behavior that proposed a method of trading that the researchers claimed could generate annual gains of at least 
Simons and his colleagues ignored the basic information most investors focus on, such as earnings, dividends, and corporate news, what the codebreakers termed the fundamental economic statistics of the market. Instead, they proposed searching for a small number of macroscopic variables capable of predicting the market's short-term behavior. They posited that the market had as many as eight underlying states, such as high variance, when stocks experienced larger-than-average moves, and good, when shares generally rose. Here's what was really unique. The paper didn't try to identify or predict these states using economic theory or other conventional methods, nor did the researchers seek to address why the market entered certain states. Simons and his colleagues used mathematics to determine the set of states best fitting the observed pricing data. Their model then made its bets accordingly. The whys didn't matter, Simons and his colleagues seemed to suggest, just the strategies to take advantage of the inferred states. For the majority of investors, this was an unheard-of approach, but gamblers would have understood it well. Poker players surmise the mood of their opponents by judging their behavior and adjusting their strategies accordingly. Facing off against someone in a miserable mood calls for certain tactics. Others are optimal if a competitor seems overjoyed and overconfident. Players don't need to know why their opponent is glum or exuberant to profit from those moods. They just have to identify the moods themselves. Simons and the Codebreakers proposed a similar approach to predicting stock prices, relying on a sophisticated mathematical tool called a hidden Markov model. Just as a gambler might guess an opponent's mood based on his or her decisions, an investor might deduce a market state from its price movements. Simons's paper was crude, even for the late 1960s. He and his colleagues made some naive assumptions, such as that trades could be made under ideal conditions, which included no trading costs, even though the model required heavy daily trading. Still, the paper can be seen as something of a trailblazer. Until then, investors generally sought an underlying economic rationale to explain and predict stock moves, or they used simple technical analysis, which involved employing graphs or other representations of past price movements to discover repeatable patterns. Simons and his colleagues were proposing a third approach, one that had similarities with technical trading, but was much more sophisticated and reliant on tools of math and science. They were suggesting that one could deduce a range of signals capable of conveying useful information about expected market moves. Simons and his colleagues weren't alone in suggesting that stock prices are set by a complex process with many inputs, including some that are hard or even impossible to pin down and not necessarily related to traditional fundamental factors. Around that time, Harry Markowitz, the University of Chicago Nobel laureate and father of modern portfolio theory, was searching for anomalies in securities prices, as was mathematician Edward Thorpe. Thorpe would attempt an early form of computerized trading, gaining a head start on Simons. Stay tuned for more, dear listener. Simons was part of this vanguard. He and his colleagues were arguing that it wasn't important to understand all the underlying levers of the market's machine, but to find a mathematical system that matched them well enough to generate consistent profits, a view that would inform Simons' approach to trading years later. 
Their model foreshadowed revolutions in finance, including factor investing, the use of models based on unobservable states and other forms of quantitative investing that would sweep the investing world decades later. By 1967, Simons was thriving at the IDA. He was matching wits with Russians, making progress in his math research, learning how to manage big brains, and gaining a better understanding of the power of computation. His ability to identify the most promising ideas of his colleagues was especially distinctive. He was a terrific listener, Neuwirth says. It's one thing to have good ideas. It's another to recognize when others do. If there was a pony in your pile of horse manure, he would find it. By then, Leibler had begun discussing retirement, and Simons was in line to become the division's deputy director. A bump in salary and increased prestige seemed within reach. The Vietnam War changed everything. That fall, protests cropped up around the country, including on the campus of Princeton University. Few Princeton students realized a division supporting the NSA was in their neighborhood until an article appeared in the school newspaper, the Daily Princetonian, alerting the community to the fact. Simons and his colleagues weren't doing work related to the war, and many of them were vehemently against the effort. That summer, when Jim and Barbara's daughter Liz went to sleepaway camp, her friends received packages of candy from their parents. Liz got peace necklaces. The codebreakers' unhappiness with the war didn't stop Princeton students from launching a series of protests, including a sit-in blocking the IDA's entrance. At one point, the building was trashed, Newworth's car was pelted with eggs, and he was called a baby killer. As debate about the war heated up across the country, the New York Times published an opinion piece by General Maxwell D. Taylor as the cover story of its Sunday magazine. In the piece, General Taylor, the decorated war veteran who had served as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and had convinced President John F. Kennedy to send combat troops to the region, made a forceful argument that the United States was winning the war and that the nation should rally around the effort. It was too much for Simons, who didn't want readers to be left with an impression that all IDA employees backed the war. He wrote a six-paragraph letter to the paper, arguing that there were better uses of the nation's resources than conducting war in Vietnam. It would make us a stronger country to rebuild Watts than it would to bomb Hanoi, Simons wrote. It would make us stronger to construct decent transportation on our east coast than it would to destroy all the bridges in Vietnam. After the newspaper published the letter, Simons was rather pleased with himself. He didn't get much reaction from colleagues and figured Taylor was fine with a little difference of opinion. A bit later, a stringer for Newsweek working on an article about Defense Department employees opposed to the war contacted Simons, asking how they handled their qualms. Simon said he and his colleagues generally worked on personal projects half the time, while spending the rest of the time on government projects. Since he opposed the war, Simon said, he had decided to devote all his time to his own mathematics research until the fighting ended, and then he'd only do Defense Department work to even things out. In truth, Simons hadn't formally established any kind of clean break from defense work. It was a personal goal, one he probably shouldn't have shared with the public. I was 29, Simons explains. No one had ever asked to interview me, and I was a wise guy. Simons told Leibler about the interview, 
and Leibler gave Taylor a heads up about the forthcoming Newsweek article. A short while later, Leibler returned with some disturbing news. You're fired, he said. What? You can't fire me, Simons responded. I'm a permanent member. Jim, the only difference between a permanent member and a temporary member is a temporary member has a contract, Leibler said. You don't. Simons came home in the middle of the day, shell-shocked. Three days later, President Lyndon Johnson announced the halting of U.S. bombing missions, a sign the war effort was coming to an end. Simons figured the news meant he could reclaim his job. Leibler told him not to bother coming in. By then, Simons had three young children. He had little idea what he was going to do next, but getting fired so abruptly convinced him that he needed to gain some control over his future. He wasn't quite sure how, though. Simons's minimal varieties paper was gaining attention, and he fielded offers from some schools, as well as companies including IBM. He told Leonard Charlap, a friend and fellow mathematician, that teaching mathematics seemed too dull. Simons said he might join an investment bank to sell convertible bonds. When Charlap said he didn't know what convertible bonds were, Simons launched into a long description. Charlap was disappointed in his friend. Simons was one of the world's premier young mathematicians, not someone meant to hawk Wall Street's latest product. That's ridiculous, Charlap said. What's your ideal job? Simons confessed that he'd prefer to chair a large math department, but he was too young and didn't know the right people. Charlap said he had an idea. A bit later, a letter arrived for Simons from John Toll, president of SUNY Stony Brook a public university on Long Island about 60 miles from New York City. The school had spent five years searching for someone to lead its math department. To the extent that the school had a reputation, it was for having a problem with drug use on campus. The only thing we had heard was that there were some drug raids there, Barbara says. Toll was determined to change things. A physicist who had been recruited by New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller Toll was leading a $100 million government-funded drive to turn the school into the Berkeley of the East. He already had recruited Nobel Prize-winning physicist Chen Ning Yang and was now focusing on revitalizing his math department. Toll offered Simons the position of chairman, dangling the chance to be his own boss and build the department as he wished. I want it, Simons told Toll. In 1968, at the age of 30, Simons moved his family to Long Island, where he began charming recruits and building a department. Early on, Simons targeted a Cornell University mathematician named James Axe, who, a year earlier, had won the prestigious Cole Prize in number theory. Axe seemed unlikely to bolt the Ivy League powerhouse for an unheralded school like Stony Brook. He had a wife, a young son, and a bright future at Cornell but Simons and Axe had been friendly as graduate students at Berkeley, and they had stayed in touch, giving Simons some hope as he and Barbara drove five hours northwest to Ithaca, New York, to meet with the younger mathematician. Simons wooed Axe, promising him a major salary increase. Later, he and Barbara hosted Axe and his family in Stony Brook, where Simons drove his guests to West Meadow Beach in nearby Brookhaven on Long Island Sound hoping the picturesque views might sway them. Back in Ithaca, Axe and his wife, also named Barbara, received care packages from Simons packed with pebbles 
and other reminders of Stony Brook's more temperate climate. Axe took his time deliberating, frustrating Simons. One day, Simons walked into his Stony Brook office in a tennis outfit, flung his racket to the ground, and told a colleague, if this job requires any more ass-licking, I'm out of here. The entreaties paid off, though. Axe became the first brand-name academic to join Stony Brook. He really wore us down with his little tricks, Barbara Axe says. Axe's decision sent a message that Simons meant business. As he raided other schools, Simons refined his pitch, focusing on what it might take to lure specific mathematicians. Those who valued money got raises. Those focused on personal research got lighter class loads, extra leave, generous research support, and help evading irritating administrative requirements. Jim, I don't want to be on a committee, one potential hire told him. How about the library committee, Simon said. It's a committee of one. Courting accomplished candidates, Simon's developed a unique perspective on talent. He told one Stony Brook professor, Herschel Farkas, that he valued killers, those with a single-minded focus who wouldn't quit on a math problem until arriving at a solution. Simons told another colleague that some academics were super smart, yet weren't original thinkers worthy of a position at the university. There are guys and there are real guys, he said. Simons worked to create a collegial, stimulating environment, just as he had enjoyed at the IDA. To keep his academics happy, Simons kept teaching loads at reasonable levels and invited colleagues to join him and Barbara on their newly purchased 23-foot boat docked on Long Island Sound. Unlike some top-flight academics, Simons relished interacting with colleagues. He'd wander into a professor's office, asking what projects he was working on and how he could be helpful, much like he had at the IDA. It's unusual for someone to think of the well-being of colleagues, Farkas says. Simons put mathematicians and students at ease, dressing more informally than others at the school. He rarely wore socks, even in the frigid New York winters, a practice he would continue into his 80s. I just decided it takes too much of my time to put them on, Simon says. Simons and Barbara hosted weekly parties at which academics, artists, and left-leaning intellectuals removed their shoes and mingled on the Simons's white shag carpet, enjoying drinks and chatting about politics and other topics of the day. Simons made mistakes, including letting future Fields Medal winner Xing Tung Yao get away after the young geometer demanded tenure. But he assembled one of the world's top centers of geometry, hiring 20 mathematicians while learning to identify the nation's best minds and how to recruit and manage them. As Simons's department expanded, his personal life became unglued. Simons's charisma attracted a range of students to his office at all hours. He was receiving acclaim from his minimal varieties work and enjoying the power of his chairmanship amid a period in which sexual norms and restraints were rapidly loosening. A best-selling book of the time, Open Marriage, encouraged spouses to strip marriage of its antiquated ideals and explore sexual relationships outside of wedlock. At the same time, the women's liberation movement encouraged women to discard the perceived shackles of society, including conservative dress and even monogamy. There seemed to be a contest among the secretaries as to who could wear the shortest skirt, 
recalls Charlap, the Stony Brook professor. Simons was 33 years old and feeling restless once again. Rumors emerged of an extramarital dalliance with the department's attractive secretary. At least once, Simons made a crude joke about a female academic, surprising his colleagues. At the time, Barbara felt overshadowed by her husband's accomplishments and was frustrated that early marriage and motherhood had stunted her own academic career. Barbara was smart and ambitious, but she had married at 18 and had a daughter at 19. I felt a little trapped, she says. One day, Simons heard Barbara was conducting a relationship with a younger colleague whom Simons had recruited and mentored. Simons was shaken. At a dinner party, when someone asked why Simons was so upset, noting that Jim's relationship with Barbara hadn't been ideal and he didn't seem especially committed to her, a drunken Simons slammed his hand against a wall, a colleague recalls. Simons decided to take a sabbatical year at the University of California, Los Angeles, so he could undergo primal therapy, which was emerging as something of a cultural phenomenon. The approach involved screaming or otherwise articulating repressed pain primally as a newborn emerging from the womb. Simons, who sometimes woke up screaming at night, was intrigued by the approach. After a few weeks of therapy, Simons had second thoughts. When his instructor suggested he might make more progress if he used marijuana, Simons decided to bolt. This seems like a hoax, he thought. Simons moved back to the East Coast, spending the year at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. His marriage with Barbara couldn't be salvaged, and they eventually divorced. Barbara would head to UC Berkeley, where she completed a PhD in computer science in 1981. In her dissertation, Barbara solved an open problem in theoretical computer science. She would join IBM as a researcher and become president of ACM, the largest educational and scientific computing society. Later, Barbara emerged as a national expert on the security problems of computerized voting, demonstrating an interest in technology and addressing broader societal challenges that Simons would share. We just married too young, Barbara says. My parents were right. Back on Long Island, this time on his own, Simons searched for a live-in nanny to lend a hand when his three children were with him. One day, he interviewed Marilyn Horries, a pretty 22-year-old blonde who later became a graduate student in economics at Stony Brook. Shortly after employing Marilyn, Simons asked her on a date. For a while, the relationship was off and on. Eventually, Marilyn left to become a nanny for James Axe's children, helping out as Axe and his wife went through a painful divorce. Marilyn lived with Barbara Axe and her two sons, Kevin and Brian, playing late-night games of Scrabble with the family, cooking a mean mac and cheese, and providing a shoulder for the kids to cry on. Marilyn was a godsend to all of us recalls Axe's son, Brian Keating. Over time, Jim and Marilyn forged a romantic bond. Marilyn made progress on a PhD in economics, while Simons enjoyed a breakthrough with Xing Shen Chern, the professor he had followed to UC Berkeley, only to realize he was on leave. On his own, Simons made a discovery related to quantifying shapes in curved three-dimensional spaces. He showed his work to Chern, who realized the insight could be extended to all dimensions. In 1974, Chern and Simons published Characteristic Forms and Geometric Invariants, 
a paper that introduced Chern-Simon's invariance. An invariant is a property that remains unchanged, even while undergoing particular kinds of transformations, which proved useful in various areas of mathematics. In 1976, at the age of 37, Simons was awarded the American Mathematical Society's Oswald Veblen Prize in Geometry, the highest honor in the field, for his work with Chern and his earlier research in minimal varieties. A decade later, theoretical physicist Edward Witten and others would discover that Chern-Simons' theory had applications to a range of areas in physics, including condensed matter, string theory, and supergravity. It even became crucial to methods used by Microsoft and others in their attempts to develop quantum computers capable of solving problems vexing modern computers, such as drug development and artificial intelligence. By 2019, tens of thousands of citations in academic papers, approximately three a day, referenced Chern-Simons theory, cementing Simons's position in the upper echelon of mathematics and physics. Simons had reached a pinnacle of his profession. Just as quickly, he drifted from mathematics, desperate for a new summit to ascend. In 1974, the floor tile company Simons had started with his friends Edmundo Eskenazi and Jimmy Mayer sold a 50% stake, delivering profits to Simons and the other owners. Simons recommended that Eskenazi, Mayer, and Victor Shayo invest their money with Charlie Freifeld, who had taken a course with Simons at Harvard. An offshore trust Shio had established for Simons also placed money with Freifeld. Freifeld employed a different strategy than most. He built econometric models to forecast the prices of commodities, including sugar, using economic and other data as his inputs. If crop production fell, for example, Freifeld's models computed the price rise that likely would result, an early form of quantitative investing. Freifeld's tactics paid off, as sugar prices nearly doubled. The value of the group's partnership soared tenfold to $6 million. Some of the investors reacted in unexpected ways to the shocking windfall. I was depressed, says Mayer, Simons's friend from Columbia. We'd made all this money, but there was no socially redeeming value in what we were doing. Simons had a very different response. The rapid-fire gains got his speculative juices flowing once more reminding him of the rush trading could bring. Freifeld's style even shared some similarities to the math-based trading system described by Simons and his colleagues in their paper at the IDA. He thought using models to trade was an idea that held promise. Jim got the bug, Mayer says. Despite his recent acclaim, Simons needed a break from mathematics. He and Jeff Cheeger, a protege who was emerging as a star in the field of geometry, had been trying to show that certain geometrically defined numbers, such as pi, are irrational in almost every case. They weren't getting anywhere and were growing frustrated, even hopeless. There was a bigger game there, and we weren't able to get it, Simons says. It was driving me crazy. Simons was also dealing with confusion in his personal life. He was growing closer to Marilyn, but was still pained by the breakup of his marriage. After four years of dating, Simons confided to a friend that he was contemplating proposing marriage, but was unsure about getting back into a serious relationship. I've met this woman. She's really special, he told a friend. I don't know what I'm going to do. Jim and Marilyn married, 
but he continued pondering his life's direction. Simons reduced his obligations at Stony Brook to spend half his time trading currencies for a fund established by Shio. By 1977, Simons was convinced currency markets were ripe for profit. World currencies had begun to float, moving freely without regard to the price of gold, and the British pound had tumbled. It seemed to Simons that a new, volatile era had begun. In 1978, Simons left academia to start his own investment firm focusing on currency trading. Simons' father told him he was making a big mistake giving up a tenured position. Mathematicians were even more shocked. Until then, most had only a vague awareness that Simons had outside interests. The idea that he might leave to play the market full-time was confounding. Mathematicians generally have a complicated relationship with money. They appreciate the value of wealth, but many see the pursuit of lucre as a lowly distraction from their noble calling. Academics wouldn't say it to Simons directly, but some were convinced he was squandering rare talent. We looked down on him, like he had been corrupted and had sold his soul to the devil, says Rene Carmona, who taught at Cornell at the time. Simons had never completely fit into the world of academia, though. He loved geometry and appreciated the beauty of mathematics, but his passion for money, curiosity about the business world, and need for new adventures set him apart. I've always felt like something of an outsider, no matter what I was doing, he would later say. I was immersed in mathematics, but I never felt quite like a member of the mathematics community. I always had a foot outside that world. Simons had been a star cryptologist, had scaled the heights of mathematics, and had built a world-class math department all by the age of 40. He was confident he could conquer the world of trading. Investors had spent centuries trying to master markets, rarely finding huge success. Once again, rather than deter Simons, the challenges seemed to spark enthusiasm. He really wanted to do unusual things, things others didn't think possible his friend Joe Rosenshine says. Simons would find it harder than he expected. 